You're listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show set out to bring you news, interesting topics and interviews with people mostly from Europe, building bridges and breaking down language barriers to show the world how active and awesome the skeptical movement is in the region. This is episode 229. I'm your host, Andras Pinter, and joining me for the show is my co-host, Pontus Böckmann. See ya. Hey, Sadeh and Andras, how are you? Not bad, yourself? Mm. I'm very well, thank you, very well. Oh, yeah. Uh, we've had fantastic weather here for a couple of days, maybe you have as well. Oh, yeah. And I have convinced my son to take up golf. So I used to play golf a long time ago, almost it's 20 years ago since I played regularly. So now me, him, and also my wife, we have uh, spent uh, the past week getting up to speed on golf and it's really really fun so wow and uh, i haven't ever played golf so i have no idea what it is like mm-hmm. so is it really a sport though uh, i mean yes <laughs> you you seldom work up a sweat but but it, <laughs> that's for me then but there is some physical activities of course but i would say that the most of it's uh, is, well it's technique of course and you can practice and practice and practice but then it's all in the head mm-hmm. if you get into your head that you cannot hit the ball then that's a fact. You cannot hit the ball. If they pay you $10,000, you will miss the bloody ball. And so, and um, <laughs> if you go on around and you feel it's go- going well and it goes well for a couple of uh, holes there, and then suddenly you hit three balls directly down into the water, which can happen, mm-hmm. and your score for the day is totally disastrous because of that, even though you played well in the beginning, then it's very, very hard to focus and, and calm down. And, and yes, I will I will just look at the ball, forget what all the mistakes I made. I will do it very slow and well, and I will focus just to get it in the middle of the fairway. And so, so it's a lot of it is in the head. And some strategy as well, you shouldn't be tempted to take risks. Better play too safe strokes than try to go over that hill with all of those nasty bushes wow mm. it, it reminds me of uh the, the moments when i when i decide to practice a little bit of piano and i'm not very good at it but <laughs> i tend to do a lot of it uh, in one run uh, if i can yeah but whenever i i hit the wrong key it makes me frustrated mm. and that as well yeah. can be all in the mind but um now that you mentioned that uh, you don't necessarily break a sweat that's what i do all day long break a sweat yeah i, I <laughs> <laughs> what because what? as you mentioned the, the weather has been so nice ah. and uh, i happen to have an attic mm. room it's a like a small apartment like thing and uh, it can get really hot so i've been looking up things or techniques <laughs> how to try to keep the temperature at a normal level so i've become a bit of an expert <laughs> in, in energy management of your house mm-hmm. and uh, obviously there are a lot of things that i cannot do because i cannot restructure the whole house and then i can, cannot rebuild it and and uh, re-insulate it but it's amazing how much you can achieve by managing the the energy intake from the windows and how to keep the the heat out that usually would come in through the windows and stuff 
and uh, how to apply equipment that is not AC and stuff. Mm-hmm. But I've, I've managed to bring all that to an acceptable level, even when the outside temperature goes above 35 degrees, which it has yeah. in the last week. Yeah, 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 so yeah. It's all about <laughs> physics, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is. It's amazing how much you learn. Yeah. But I think you've been up to something else as well. Uh, some Some very interesting stuff. Uh, I believe you were into. I don't believe it because I was there. I was watching. <laughs> were the you interview. there? Were you there? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So mm. I was watching the interview that Susan Gerbic interviewed you for uh, her series about Time Presents in conversation with, and this time it was with yeah, Pontus Bergman. It was. It was last. How was it? Was it Friday? It was yeah, great. It was, it was a great talk. A great sp- uh, conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, we spoke for almost two hours. I, th- yeah. I was uh, the time just flew by and was it was like live streamed on on facebook but now you can find it on youtube and it's not just me it's also you andras because you were one of her first guests almost a month ago yeah and i believe we failed to mention that afterwards we didn't say that yeah (laughs) which tells our listeners a lot about how professional we are when it comes to marketing terrible terrible yeah (laughs) but it's not just even the two of us it's it's a serious and now she's really getting uh, in a flow she's sometimes i think one day she had two interviews in the same day oh yeah and uh, there's been like 16 17 conversations already so look that up on we will put the the links on uh, Mm -hmm. on the show notes to to youtube so that's susan gerbic this of course the same susan gerbic that we always mention the brain behind uh, guerrilla skepticism on wikipedia and all of that and she has gotten hold of quite a lot of interesting folks yeah and you and me (laughs) (laughs) yeah well put um yeah and uh, among all those people i think the most recent or probably upcoming uh, I'm a bit confused about that because by the time this goes out, it might be in the past yes. that she interviews Marsh, Michael Marshall, yes, from the Good Thinking Society, and who's also mm-hmm. one of the organizers uh, of uh, QED that we love so much. And mm. uh, he Skeptics has with a K. two podcasts, Skeptics with a K, and the other one that I, it's really difficult to listen to. Be reasonable yes. when he interviews people who spread misinformation or have false beliefs and. The way he interviews them, it's absolutely amazing. That kind of attitude, that open-minded, very patient, extremely patient attitude. I I totally admire that. And... uh, the other other person, the other other name that we we need to mention is uh, probably Paul Offit. Yes, absolutely. He's an amazing guy. He has written several books, and now that uh, the coronavirus is uh, upon us, I think it's really important to listen to what he has to say. One of the big experts on on vaccines and vaccinations. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so what else has happened recently? Well, here locally, as I said, it's been fairly. Uh, uh, relaxed relaxed playing golf etc mm-hmm. i hear though that in poland things are happening very interestingly when it comes to uh, politics we're, we're not uh, really a political uh, podcast although we do have some political <laughs> preferences yeah just before we are recording this the polish election for president the first round for for president has been uh, finished and uh, Andrzej Duda, who is the representative for the law and or- law and order, law and law and justice party, he did not 
win more than the 50% needed in the first round. So now it's going to the next round and he's being challenged by, and I'm trying to, very hard to, to pronounce this, Rafał Traskowski. Good enough for me. Who is the liberal mayor of Warsaw. So mm. this is really interesting because... We're, we're trying to sp stay as neutral as we can. We are not fans of the Law and Order Party. Law and Justice, that's what they're called. We'll see how it goes. But yeah, we do have preferences, but those preferences are not, are not based on ideologies. Those preferences are based on who says the lowest amount of silliness yes. and crazy stuff. Yeah. So I don't have political preferences when it comes to ideologies. I don't like ideologies in general. No, it's it's the populist parties that we don't like. The ones yes, that, but I, that yes. says whatever they want to just because it, it scores a point and they don't care what is true or not. Exactly. That, so, that's the ones we yeah, don't like. Very nicely put. Mm. I, I, it's, mm. it's populism that we oppose. Yeah. But we have a lot of science and skepticism related stuff to talk about this week. So we I think we should crack on with that and the first thing to go through is when we talk about something that happened this week in skepticism well it wasn't this week but uh, <laughs> a bit long ago well there's a lot of talk these days about uh, how important it is to frequently apply a proper hand wash um, wash your hands wash your hands wash your hands exactly in order to avoid getting infected or spreading the disease it's important and even though it seems to have come as a new concept for for many which is quite surprising actually <laughs> with the, with the onset of the covid-19 pandemic it has been an important part of everyday practice in the medical profession of course along with other sanitary precautions that need to be taken but considering the origins of this massively useful practice we have to go back more than 170 years which brings us to this week's birthday boy and that is none other than Ignaz Semmelweis the Hungarian physician from the 19th century also commonly referred to as the savior of mothers and the father of infection control he was born on the 1st of July 1818 in Buda, which is the western part of current-day Budapest. You've been to Buda. I have, yes. Actually, the hotel, Hotel Gellert, where you had your room, yes. that is on the Buda side of Budapest. So Yeah. Uh, we had a great view out of the old city there, and uh, yeah. fantastic. You should go there yeah. once the travel restrictions are lifted, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyhow, Google dedicated its uh, doodle thing to him on the 20th of March. I don't know if you've noticed that, because that day marked the 173rd anniversary of his appointment as chief resident in the maternity clinic of Vienna General Hospital. Vienna and Hungary back then, they belonged to the same country, the Austria, the Habsburg Empire. Yes. And Vienna was the capital of the empire. Mm. But Budapest was the second largest city. Mm. Uh, oh, sorry, Buda was, was the second largest city. Uh, back then it wasn't called Budapest yet so it, it happened in um, 1847 and that was almost a year after he started working there uh, in the clinic the clinic had two maternity divisions one run by midwives that was the old way of helping uh, young mothers and the other one by medical students and doctors and after a while it became clear to Samuel Weiss that the midwives did a much better job at keeping the young mothers safe 
from about 1% of women that died shortly after childbirth before 18, the 1820s, which was still a very high number. But the number of deaths started to increase after that, and it went up to 7.5% by 1846, and later even to a devastating 18.27% among those under the care of physicians. One in every five. Exactly. No. It's mind-blowing that imagine a mother who goes in labor and has to fear that she won't make it afterwards. And oh. one in five, that's a very high number. So he decided to analyze the situation, and he found that only one thing that was really different between those whose delivery was held by midwives and those treated by physicians was that the latter used to regularly work with corpses as well, hmm. performing autopsies on people who recently died. And that meant a lot of germs, but they had no idea because the commonly held belief of the time was that it was miasmas that spread the disease th through the air. Well, this was before germ theory, exactly. right? Exactly. And they yeah. thought that the, the miasmas can be detected by smell. So the smell was regularly oppressed uh, by different kinds of deodoration methods, but that was all. And Semmelweis realized that it's it's from the dead people that physicians bring over the disease to the mothers that are more vulnerable to infections after childbirth, of, of course. So he thought that the so-called childbed fever that killed so many women was avoidable by washing hands with a strong disinfectant. And mind you, this was a good two decades before the germ theory came about. I mean, right. the theory was lingering there because it, it didn't come about only with Pasteur and the, and the others, but it had to be confirmed. So the general approach by physicians was that it was the miasmas. Yeah. But his numbers were solid. Yeah. He managed to bring the childbed fever cases down to around 1.5%. But the senior staff did not accept his explanation, and certainly not his consequent demands. He, he was pretty young at the time, right? Uh, he was around his 30s or something? He was uh, almost 30. He was not... not almost no, 30. Not even 30. So the, the older physicians, of course, they thought he was just making things up and blah, blah, blah. What do you know of the young yes. person? Yes, yeah. yes. I think he was 28, 29 yeah. uh, years old then. And he demanded disinfection practices from his colleagues and obviously they just didn't accept that and he later went back to budapest and by following the same practices managed to bring similar results to the maternity ward in budapest as well but the professional establishment was really not ready for for his reforms his book published in 1861 in which he explained all this in detail with the numbers and all did not get the reception it would have deserved. He was often ridiculed and even abused by his colleagues, uh, so much so that he started developing a certain level of uh, paranoia and s subsequently was ad admitted to a mental asylum, huh. where he died actually in 1865, probably as a result of a beating that he received from some of the, the guards there. Wow. So what a terrible death to someone who made such a contribution to medicine. And the two reasons why I wanted to, to talk about him on the occasion of his birthday is that, first of all, it's only fitting to bring him up uh, during these troubled times, <laughs> I believe. Yeah. But more importantly, his case is a card pseudoscientists and quacks often try to play when commenting on the so-called establishment opposing their crazy ideas. But one thing they should not forget. Samuel formulated a theory based on his thorough observations of the situation, adjusted his practices to the theory, and tested it. The numbers supported him, but unfortunately his fellow doctors didn't. 
so much so that they deemed him unfit for duty and sent him into the asylum, only to die not long after that. So let us all remember the great man who saved countless lives with the simple act of properly washing hands with chlorinated lime solutions before helping women in childbirth. Here, here. Yeah. Well, yes. And even even if you're not going to help somebody deliver a baby, please wash your hands. Please wash your hands because yeah. it has been shown to work. It works. In stopping the, the spreading <laughs> of the virus, any kind of virus, not only uh, SARS-CoV-2, any kind of infection, because there are openings on our face that make us the most vulnerable mm. to these infections. So, yeah, don't do that. Hmm? <laughs> Have you noticed, by the way, that I've had this uh, aversion to uh, touching my face when in certain situations, like traveling on uh, public transport? I get so conscious of my hands being dirty that I avoid at all times touching my, hand, uh, my face. But when it's not the case, when outside of a public transport situation, <laughs> I've noticed, and especially recently that I touch my face all the time. And we all do that. I think we do, yeah. Thousands of times a day. Mm. And this is why it's, it's very important to, to, to wash hands. Yeah. So, Samwise was right, and those fuckers can go to hell who didn't believe him <laughs> because he had the proper numbers and he, he had a scientific mind to put to this. Mm. All right. So, this was this week in skepticism. And the next round to go through is when Pontus pokes the Pope. <laughs> All right, yeah, maybe it's that the vultures are starting to circle for a future when Francis is no longer Pope, but no less than two different books with the title The Next Pope are coming out in the next four weeks. So that's interesting. Does uh, Palpatine have anything to do with them? I don't think so. Okay. No, I don't think so. And they're quite different actually, even though they have the same title, but they have different subtitles. So they focus on different things. The first one to come out is uh, written by George Wiegel, and it's subtitled The Office of Peter and a Church in Mission. And that book is about how the church is now in a transition from what the author calls the counter-reformation Catholicism into the Church of the New Evangelization which he believes is a new era to continue after Francis. Something that Francis has started, but that will continue. Why? Wait, wait, wait a minute. So um, isn't Francis the, the one who brought about the reformation of the church in this context? It's sort of. The, the previous church or the was the counter-reformation, right? You wanted yes. to counter still, I guess, from the Protestantism yeah, from yeah. a long time ago. But... But this, the new, what Francis has done is he has sort of ignored that and said, let's not care about that. Let's go out and evangelize, sell the big good news about the Catholic Church to people and ignore the other fractions. That, that's what I uh, okay. think it's, okay. it means. Okay. So all of this, that we will not go back to the, the counter-reformation, is a little against my amateur pessimistic opinion that after Francis we will have a swing back, a backlash, that's what I've said before, to a more traditional reactionary church. 
but I mean, what do I know? Uh, Weigel uh, or Weigel b- bases his assumption on that the next pope, whoever it may be, will be of the first generation that was not around during the Second Vatican Council, which took place in the 60s. Yeah. So he has a point there. So this is a, you know, cardinals and popes are old farts. And uh, <laughs> now, finally, we will get somebody who wasn't around uh, back in the day. So the, the Second Vatican Council set the agenda for the church for a very long time, and only now during Francis' regime uh, there seems to be a shift. And, and it makes sense. We, we will see. So that's the one book. The other book is uh, called The Next Pope, The Leading Cardinal Candidates. So now we're talking. This is more you know, interesting to see, I think. Uh, it's written by a guy called Edward Pentin, and it lists 19 possible candidates, oh. so-called papabili, meaning electable cardinals. So he's speculating in who is going to be the next pope. That That's fun, I think. <laughs> and some of the reviewers dismissed several of the chosen ones to be very unlikely. So, so you don't know. This is just one person's guess, basically, who the 19 are who are most likely to be elected. But it's still interesting. So let's take just some background. What are the rules? What what, what How do you become the pope? Well, first of all, when it's time to elect a new pope, only cardinals may vote and only cardinals under the age of 80. So you you become a sort of uh, retired honorary cardinal after 80 and you don't really have a big function. And in fact, Francis made it a rule that as a cardinal turns 75, he has to offer his resignation. Uh, Although I think it's always refused or almost always refused but it's still you have to hand in your resignation and then the pope says no no you can stay it was established by john paul ii that there should be only 120 voting cardinals there could be more but only 120 that are below the age of 80 but francis has actually ignored this rule and he and last year he appointed two extra (laughs) <laughs> and he can do that because he's the Pope and he can do whatever he wants. Yeah, and there were times where there were a couple, only a couple of cardinals back in the Middle Ages. Yeah. So uh, it has been boosted several times. And it has always been a political thing that people wanted to appoint cardinals on the basis that, for example, when uh, nepotism was a big thing, mm-hmm. some popes had their uh, nephews uh, some even their sons <laughs> in the conclave and and in the body of cardinals and obviously they wanted the family to keep having the opportunity to become pope sure so they wanted to appoint new cardinals that will likely vote their relatives into the chair of St. Peter. So it was all down to politics. Yeah, and it's funny that you mentioned that because even though it's changed dynamically, it's not the the, the, the big families in Italy anymore who, who do this yeah. intrigues. <laughs> Francis has been very active in appointing new cardinals. And of course, he's chosen people that he likes and people that he thinks supports his side of the the doctrines or whatever. Of the 122 current cardinals that are allowed to vote, 66 are appointed by him. So that's already 
uh, more than half of them. Wow. Uh, 40 of them were appointed by Benedict XVI, and 16 are sort of leftovers from John Paul II. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Francis has more or less uh, half of them on his side, so to speak. Wow. But for obvious reasons, those are a little bit younger mm-hmm. than the others. And among the 19 suggested in the book, only three are uh, of, uh, well, Francis's guys. Surprise, surprise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Technically, they don't have... It's, it's, so very much the tradition is you sort of have to choose the Pope within the Cardinals. But actually, it, that's not a rule. But it has been the fact ever since 1379, that's the last time they, they elected a Pope that was not a Cardinal. So... In practice, you have to be a cardinal to be the next pope. Anyway, so the book hasn't come out yet. So I I don't know the names of all of the 19 candidates. But through the different reviews that I've read, I have been managed to identify 18 of them. So there's one dark horse in the in the race that I I couldn't know. I don't know who that is, but I have a list of 18 cardinals that are listed in the books. I'm not going to go through all of them. It'll take forever and uh, you wouldn't probably know yeah. of all yeah. of them. But I, I think I'm going to mention three of them because uh, they may be worth mentioning. Go ahead. Uh, the first one is rather predictable and maybe not so exciting. That's the current Secretary of State in the Vatican, second in command, if you will, uh, mm-hmm. the Italian Bishop Pietro Parolin. He is fairly young, 65, and that sort of talks against him. You Maybe he's not experienced enough. I know. I There's a totally different <laughs> view on ages in in this world than, than we are used to. So we, we, we don't know. Um, I, I don't think he would be very controversial, but sort of boring in a way. He was appointed by Benedict, so he's not a Francis uh, uh, guy, but he was put in his role as Secretary of State by Francis. So Francis does approve of him. I wouldn't bet on him, but it's just my feeling. I, I don't know. I, I don't think he's charismatic enough, uh, but I, I don't know. Uh, the next one would be much more of a big departure from Francis, and that is the American uh, called Raymond Leo Burke. He was born in Wisconsin, and he has, among other things, been our Archbishop of uh, St. Louis, and he was also made Cardinal by Benedict. He would be a very interesting choice since he's viewed as the leader of the conservative wing of the church and he has openly criticized Francis and opposed some reforms suggested by Francis. In 2017, he even suggested that there should be a so-called dubia issued to Francis. That's a formal request to Francis to explain himself regarding a few things. It's like a question period. Uh, yeah, it's <laughs> sort of challenging the Pope and saying, hey, yeah, yeah. Popey, what, what do you mean <laughs> by this? Please explain yourself. Um, um, it, that didn't happen, of course, but he's sort of the opposite of Francis, I would say. Mm-hmm. But of course, Francis is such a diplomat. You know, after this uh, challenge fr- from uh, Burke, he he spoke very favorably about him and said, uh, and he was quoted as saying, "I do not see Cardinal Burke as an enemy." End quote. Uh, but again, if you have to say that out loud, what does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and he also called Burke an excellent lawyer. But I don't know if that's a compliment either. So it's interesting. Could be just a typo when he meant a liar. Oh, could be. Uh, could be. Very yeah. good. Mm-hmm. I didn't think of that. All right. The third and last candidate that I 
think is worth mentioning is somebody we've talked about a couple of times already this year. It's Robert Sarah, mm -hmm. the cardinal from Guinea, who co-authored the book with Benedict in defense of celibacy that was published in February. Sarah has clashed with Francis before and once actually got a formal reprimand by, by Francis. Uh, so it's interesting. We'll see. All good and interesting speculations, of course, but um, at the moment, as far as we know, Francis, although he is 83 years old, seems very healthy and show no signs of thinking of resignation, <laughs> like his predecessor. So I think we will have him around for quite a while more. Um, Francis himself, of course, is very politically correct and he hasn't commented on this at all. <laughs> so my assumption, because he's being so silent, is that he's still recovering from my scathing criticism of his misogynistic statements last week. But that's <laughs> what I think. <laughs> I, I see this as oh. an absolutely obvious attempt to manipulate the outcome oh. and try to muddy the waters and push against imagine there are six six cardinals appointed by him hmm. that means that they at least to some extent must be following his footsteps hmm. so if they tend to vote in favor of something um, someone among themselves then uh, it would be devastating for the other cardinals who, who are much more conservative. Right. So I see this both books as an attempt to, to try to manipulate the situation, try to have an influence, try to build the foundations for the new the new direction. Yeah. And they just can't wait for Francis to get out of the way. I, I do believe, I maybe I should look this up, but I'm pretty certain also that to be elected Pope, you need to have two thirds of the votes in the, in the conclave. I'm not sure about that. But if that is the case, then the 66 Francis cardinals are not enough to continue the Francis doctrine, if you will. Mm -hmm. I have to mention, there is one other candidate in, in the list, and I want to mention him, not because I know anything about him, except his name. His name is Christoph Schönborn, and he's a German, he's 75 years old, but his full name is fantastic. It is Christoph Maria Michael Hugo Damian Peter Adelbert Graf Adelbert Graf von Schönborn. With such a name, I think you have to become the next pope. Yeah, and you shouldn't change it to uh, Francis or Leo or Pius or whatever. You should keep the full name and just put a number one afterwards. <laughs> so you'll be Christoph Maria Michael Hugo Damian Peter Adelbert Graf von Schönborn. The first, <laughs> I would vote for that pope. <laughs> yeah, but you would you would need to be in the two thirds majority. So a super majority is required for uh, the election of a new pope. Yeah, all right. You were right. Okay, good. Good. Thank you very much, Pontus. Thank you for poking the pope once again. Let's move on to discussing the news. No episode without mentioning COVID nineteen. I'm nope. afraid it it looks like the number of confirmed uh, cases has passed 10 million yeah. this last weekend, with half a million deaths wow. uh, attributed to the disease. Yeah. And countries that have lifted or eased restrictions slowly start seeing a rising number of cases, unfortunately. Just what was expected, really. Hmm. This shows we have to be vigilant and compliant when it comes to trying to live our normal lives, uh, because the virus is there, and without a vaccine, the only way for us to stop the spreading is to take extra care when going out and about, making contacts, living our lives. So wash your hands, keep your distance, and when the vaccine is, is ready, please take it. But it's, it's hard to maintain that level of alertness, unfortunately, 
which we're starting to see the results of. Last week, we reported on the situation in the Tönnies meat processing plant in uh, ah, yes. Gütesloh, uh, Germany, where the whole surrounding area is in a newly inflicted lockdown now. We're talking about 650,000 people. It's still unclear how the abattoir has become a super spreading center, but more than 6,000 workers uh, seem to be living in crowded accommodations with very poor sanitary conditions, which really doesn't help. But it's not clear how much it contributed to the situation, this sanitary problem. And since most of them are foreign workers who don't speak the language well, informing them and interviewing them for contact tracing is a bit of a challenge as well for the authorities. Mm. So it's bits of information that the authorities try to use to put the whole story together. There are also reports about very poor ventilation systems inside the factory, which coupled with the low temperatures that the workers are exposed to while they work, can easily lead to a quick spreading of the virus. I think uh, it's not difficult to imagine. But the system is still very much in the dark about what caused it, which made it necessary to bring on the lockdown again. And now large-scale testing is underway as well, while they try to trace the outbreak back to a single event. It also doesn't help that Tunis is still not on top of things and their lack of transparency in the matter has been widely criticized, even by the mayor of Gütesloh. These workers have been hired by small companies and thus it's impossible to find anyone who is willing to take responsibility. Now, weirdly, talking about responsibility, an article recently published on one of Germany's biggest news portals, T-Online, suggests that this particular spreading event in North Rhine-Westphalia might have originated from a church service that at least two of the workers at Tunis had attended. Wow. And they admitted to have had contacts with others that, that later turned out positive in the church. Now, we need to take this with a pinch of salt, given that it appeared in a communication by a Tony's spokesperson. So obviously they want to blame someone else for the origins of the disease. But it's plausible, since you may remember that on the 1st of May, church services were allowed to resume in the country. Mm. But right. even in, if those two brought it from the church... It's quite clear that the spreading of the virus to infect more than 1,500 people in the factory has had at least something to do with their living or working conditions because it's quite a large spreading event. And it's phenomenal how quickly it happened and the whole thing ha has escalated. This particular church service that we're talking about happened on the 17th of May. And by the 27th of May, Tony's reported 19 infections. And the rest you already know, that it, it went all, all the way up to 1,500. But with the surrounding area, they have so far identified 2,000 infections. By the way, since this incident, a poultry uh, processing plant operated by Wiesenhof in uh, Lower Saxony has become the place of another outbreak. Oh, really? With dozens of confirmed cases. Germany's new approach seems to be to try and identify these centers of contagion and try to contain the disease in the smallest geographical unit possible, which makes a lot of sense. But that means that you have to be able to trace the contacts that these people made. But other countries struggle with uh, similar outbreaks as well. In the southern Italian town of Mondragone, a whole block of apartments had to be sealed off. Similar situation. Foreign workers, difficult to reach and communicate to, 
because they don't speak the language. And one aspect of this is that local people now seem to develop a bit of a beef with these foreigners, mm. adding to the already existing strong racist and nationalistic sentiments. So it doesn't look good. It looks like all the tension is just growing all across Europe. So these are clear examples of how quickly things can get out of hand with this pandemic. We have to be alert. We have to be very cautious. Right. And don't go to church. <laughs> no, don't go to church. <laughs> All right. Uh, so speaking of cautious, I um, one person is uh, not very cautious in the opinions he spreads and the misinformation he spreads. So I, I'm, I'm talking about hydroxychloroquine uh, again. Oh. So uh, the, the, that was the so-called cure, quote unquote, uh, for COVID-19 that was touted by especially one French dude who was not actually a dude. Uh, Didier Raoul was a, or is still, a um, epidemiologist and he had a very good reputation before this started. He's still a dude. He's still a dude, okay. <laughs> well, okay, so he had some previous studies uh, on the effects of hydroxychloroquine against uh, COVID-19 and they were th those studies were criticized for being poorly controlled and based on very few participants. Apparently uh, Raoul then had a hearing last week with the Commission of Inquiry of the National Assembly in France. Uh, one parliamentarian who's also a geneticist, so he knows his science, he basically scolded Raoult and said, uh, quote, You knew very well that these pseudo-clinical trials were absolutely not admissible for anyone, end quote. And Raoult then replied with something that doesn't make sense to me at all. And he said, quote, The fewer people there are in a trial, the more significant it is. And that doesn't make what? any sense to me. It doesn't. And then he continued to say, any essay that involves more than a thousand people tries to demonstrate something that does not exist, end quote. Uh, it's total nonsense. It could be deliberate that he, he's not making sense or just he doesn't know what he's talking about. I don't know. Or he's referring to something obscure that doesn't come through the quote. I, 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 I don't know. It's just weird. I mean, a, sm a larger study is better than a small study. Everybody knows that. Uh, anyway, so the day after he had this hearing uh, on the 25th of June, he did present a much bigger study. And it was fairly uh, very big, actually. I'll give him that. It was over 3,100 people that took part in an, an observational study. It's, so it's still an observational study. It's not a double-blind randomized study. But still, during the circumstances and the pandemic situation, I think that's understandable. But apparently there were even worse problems uh, with this than that it was just an observational study. I, I haven't got all the details uh, about it, and I also have to make do with Google Translate from Fran <laughs> Google Translate from French. But uh, the, the, it's clear that other scientists were not impressed by this new study. The new study was flat out rejected by representatives from the University of Sorbonne, of uh, the University of Versailles-Saint-Quentin, however you pronounce that in French, and uh, uh, University of Southern Denmark. And the reason that they rejected it was that participants were excluded in the trial in a way that totally skewed the results. And one quote that was um, printed was, the main problem is that those who do not survive treatment are classified as untreated, end quote. 
Mm. Yeah, that is a problem. If you exclude people who don't follow what you expect to happen, then um, you are just <laughs> manufacturing the results, right? Yeah, yeah. There was another quote. Uh, it was, there are many problems, each of which are, is of great concern. Taken together, they make this study 100% useless to guide clinical practice, end quote. And then the third quote was, what can we say? We compare cabbage and carrots, and even by adjusting for the size of the leaves, it remains cabbage and carrots. That's right. <laughs> End quote. So, not surprisingly, this study was scheduled to be published by The Lancet, mm -hmm. but uh, it was rejected by them and uh, published in another less prestigious one. And Didier Raoul said that this was because The Lancet is so anti-Trump that they prefer to receive papers that are negative to hydroxychloroquine. So, so you're just making up one excuse after the other. The Lancet is probably the most prestigious journal in the field of medicine. Yeah. And uh, it's just so telling that when The Lancet decided not to publish his paper, then uh, a less prestigious journal took it. Yeah. Well, you go all the way to the, the first person who's willing to publish your work and uh, then you can tell that uh, you really published it in a scientific journal. Yeah, but I'm getting more and more fascinated by this Didier Raoul. He seems to be willing to go down and flush his whole career down the, the yeah. toilet just because of his belief in hydroxychloroquine. And he should know better because he has a good reputation before this. He has not the evidence that he claims that he has. Imagine that the more invested you are, and it is very obvious that uh, when you're, you go out there, you make a statement about something, the greatest the public interest in this, and the greatest the reach, the more difficult it becomes for you to back down from it and say that, sorry, I was wrong. But he re And should at the moment it becomes politically charged as well. It gets even worse. Yeah, but it, if you realize that you're wrong or everybody's against you, maybe you should just keep quiet for a while. I'm not expecting him to go out and make a big apology about this, but at least he should calm down and say, hey, maybe, maybe I should do some more research before I push this. Yeah. I don't know. That's yeah, I, I really don't want to defend him, but it might be journalists, it might be the media that's pushing him hmm. towards that. Maybe. Because obviously he's the go-to person for the media now when it comes to uh, hydroxychloroquine and uh yeah, it's probably something that makes it more even more difficult for him and there is someone someone else i don't really don't want to defend at any situation you often hear me talk about how victor orban and his government destroys everything they touch in uh, Hung hungarian <laughs> society <laughs> and rest assured they do touch everything they can get a hold of they have been taking control over education as well in a massively politicized way, uh, centralizing the system, getting rid of the formerly existing variety of textbooks and replacing them with the new ones written or edited by people they handpicked for the task. Not based on professional merit, but political leaning, of course. I think I don't have to explain what the result of such changes can be. The aim is to brainwash students, but the quality of textbooks, even the ones for science, is absolutely outrageous now. I used to be a science teacher and I still have an interest in all that and I have to say it's mental what they've done to it. The literature part of the curriculum also focuses on nationalistic politically charged authors and their work so it's all ideologically driven. 
of the latest madness happened in the field of history. I don't know how history is taught in Sweden or in other countries, how much of it is, is taught, how much burden it means for the students. I think it, the, the volume, or sorry, the, the, the time spent on it on, in schools is good. It is a bit nationalistic. Okay. And especially me from the very south of Sweden that used to belong to Denmark, mm-hmm. we get to read about our big kings in the 1500s, 1600s, 1700s. You know, even when we were actually part of Denmark, And it took me until I was an adult to say, hey, that king that we learned so much about of in school, he wasn't even our king at the time. Yeah. And nobody pointed that out. (laughs) So, uh, yeah. All right. Uh, That that, that is unexpected. I I wouldn't wouldn't have expected that from the Swedish system. I don't think it's sort of intentional. It's just that they write the school books in Stockholm and they forget about that. Ah, Okay. Mm. So it's not about brainwashing all the people that are leaving. No, not deliberately. No. Okay. Okay. It's just Mm. uh, a mistake. Yeah. Probably. Or it's just you being naive. Could be. (laughs) (laughs) That's happened before. Yeah. But uh, anyway, one, one thing is for sure in Hungary, during the four years of uh, high school studies for a student, they uh, used to learn a lot about the history of mankind, all mankind, from from the rise of our species to the 21st century. Mm-hmm. And it was often argued that it was too much, the, the material that, that we had to learn. Mm-hmm. And this I tend to agree with, actually. Well, it's a bit ambitious, yeah. Uh, yeah, and the, the history of the Hungarian nation has always been the, the most important part of, of our studies, of course. But since the communist era, where... Everything had to be uh, looked at through the the communist lens. Mm -hmm. There have been, since then, 30 years of teaching history in a somewhat objective way, with a bit of a critical approach to it, which is, I believe, the way it should be. You need to see what the connections between different historical events are. And this is why I I see the point in trying to, to learn the history of mankind, in a way, because it gives you the the context to every uh, historical event. But according to the miniature dictator of our country, it is not the way. So he wants students to be proud Hungarians, <laughs> believing we're the greatest fucking nation on earth. And he wants young adults to be brainwashed and compliant with his nationalistic agendas completely. And this is quite obvious when we see what's going on. The government used uh, the last couple of months, mind you, that was the COVID-19 situation that they would have had to deal with but they used this last couple months of lockdown to rewrite the national history curriculum and issue new textbooks to complement it it was so quickly rushed through the system that they had no time for peer review no time for professional debates it was simply announced to become effective as of september this year Hmm. i have to mention that the last time the association of history teachers dared formulate a critical comment on the changes that had taken place by Orbán's government, they were called the enemies of the nation by the public media. So as for the actual madness that found its way to our history curriculum this time, they got rid of most of ancient history to replace it with the ancient history of Hungarians. So no Mesopotamia, no Egypt, not that kind of shit. A little bit of Greece, a little bit of history of of Italy and the, the Roman Empire. But mostly it was replaced with Hungarian, ancient Hungarian history. The problem with this is that the actual historical and archaeological evidence regarding our early history is fragmented. It's mostly non-existent. And I'm talking about thousands of years ago that they try to uh, give an idea of what happened then. 
details of our migration into the Carpathian Basin are largely absent. So there are several competing theories as to how it happened. But what they did was they cherry-picked the one that paints the most glorious picture of our conquering of the area and ran with it. Oh. And the new books deny or at least doubt our language to be kin to modern Estonian and Finnish. What? While there is international scientific consensus yes. to that actually being the case, right? Oh, we, we've mentioned that several times. Yeah. Our language is most closely related to these two in Europe and some others around the Uralian mountains. And furthermore, they emphasize our Hon origins, something that is debatable at best, yeah. but they deal with it as fact. There might have been a tribe that had connection to the Huns of Otila, but it's doubtful that we had a clear descent from Attila's people. By the way, this legit connection to the Huns was first mentioned in chronicles written almost a millennium after the great Hun leader's death. So it's not contemporary, it's nothing contemporary, so it was probably made up, the whole connection, and in order to boost our nationalistic pride. And the list goes on, with old Hungarian folk legends being presented as history. And when we don't make this distinction between a folk legend and history, then it is just the way to create some chaos in the minds. Yeah. And the cherry on top is that the new curriculum claims to hold the importance of critical analysis of sources a priority. <sighs> My ass. <laughs> they, <laughs> they cast doubt on scientifically sound theories and even facts in order to muddy the waters and spread their own madness. That is not critical thinking uh -huh. and something that could be out of a fake news handbook, actually. Uh -huh. Good times, right? Mm. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's, well, it, it, you don't know if you should laugh or, or just weep because that's, that's uh, it's terrible. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Totally different s subject now. And just because I feel it's due that we do a measles update. It was such a long time ago. <laughs> we haven't forgotten about measles. And long-term listeners must remember. How could we, right? No, but, you know, we, we used to have regular measles updates. And I think we started with that already back in 2016 yeah. or something. Yeah. And we followed in horror how the number of measles cases ran amok uh, across Europe and the world. And those were different days, of course, when we had different perspectives on epidemics <laughs> than we have today. And we haven't really... The last time we mentioned uh, measles, I think, was in December. So just to catch up on where we are there, the, the measles epidemic reached a, its peak in the first six months last year. Mm -hmm. But more or less, well, I shouldn't say died out, but it has really subsided towards the end of the year. And uh, th that's why we haven't talked about it. But uh, just because there's something much worse going on, we still need to keep an eye on measles. So it's one of the most infectious diseases that we have in the world or we know of. So last year was really, really bad. It was uh, over half a million cases worldwide. Uh, where just 100,000 was in the European region, which in WHO terms includes not just the EU, but also East Europe with Russia, Ukraine, Belarus, etc. And even further, it goes down to Israel and all the stars. Yeah, there's the stars. Yeah, it's a large chunk yeah, of Asia as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, yeah, yeah. Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, etc. Ukraine was the worst hit. Uh, in the European region with over 57,000 cases. 
and that was followed by Kazakhstan, Russia, Georgia and Turkey. And I'm very happy to say that things have improved tremendously. Ukraine, for instance, only has reported 200 cases nice. as of end of May. So that that's really... I mean, I even wonder if that's true, but that that's what they have reported. Like it could have a lot to do with the lockdown. Uh, yeah, it could be. Just like could it be, did yeah. with the influenza as well. Yes, yes, yes. Most countries, yeah. But still, I mean, it's fantastic improvement. The whole European region, excluding EU, has gone from... 91,000 cases for all of 2019 to 9,500 cases for the first five months of 2020. And that's a reduction by 75%. Uh Uh, So what about EU? And I'll include uh, the United Kingdom here for a while (laughs) more because it's easier to compare then. But anyway, it looks very similar. It has improved a lot. Um, It's uh, an improvement year on year by 76%. Romania is still up there. Now in the so-called lead with 528 cases. And that's only down by 25%, so that's still bad. Then we have Bulgaria and France, which both are pretty bad in absolute numbers. But they're still down by 53% and 80% respectively. And the rest of EU is going doing very well indeed. But uh, just one for a second, uh, remind everyone uh, that these numbers should be zero if we got people vaccinated. Yeah, we applaud how much it, it uh, went down, but it's still not enough. Yeah, it's, that's right. Yeah, exactly. There is no reason to see measles in the world at all, especially here in Europe, where we all have access to modern healthcare, mm-hmm. if only we want to. Yeah, it should have the same fate as smallpox. Had. Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the United Kingdom, because um, <laughs> as part of the United Kingdom, there is a beautiful, lovely place, which is a country, actually, just saying. It's Scotland. Mm-hmm. And yeah, yeah, yeah. They're welcome back in the EU whenever they want to. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And finally, I can move to Scotland mm-hmm. then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it has a very famous place, uh, the, the Loch Ness, which is uh, the Ness Lake. And I have to say that one of the fields that I've uh, always been fascinated with is uh, somewhere on the border between science and pseudoscience, and it is cryptozoology. Mm. And one of the most prominent cases, obviously, that it (laughs) brings to mind is the Loch Ness Monster. Did you see the latest photo that that made the rounds on no, the internet? No, I didn't. No, recently. And you know how the how the usual issue we have with uh, with those photos of the monster is that they're blurry, they they lack all the details and and all that jazz. So it's yeah. it's obvious that they've been faked. Now this photo looks amazing, so real, and the thing we see on it is really big. So um, if you compare it to the waves, and uh, especially if you see that the size of the lake. It is huge. Mm-hmm. So obviously the first thing that comes to mind is that it is the, the best photo of the Loch Ness Monster so far. The photo was allegedly taken in September 2019 at this beautiful lake uh, in the gorgeous country of Scotland. And uh, as I said, a massive thing was visible on the photo that was shared in a Facebook group called Anomalous Universe. And the person who shared it was one of its founders, the, the Facebook group's founders, who goes by the name Steve Patrick Carrington. But the photo was picked up by the mirror, hmm. which, being a tabloid, is only understandable to, to jump on a story like this. Sure. But the guide, Carrington, claimed that he didn't believe in the Loch Ness Monster and said he was convinced that it was probably a catfish or something like that. Now, it was a good hint. 
because obviously the photo made it to, to, to Twitterverse as well. And the people of Twitter, the, the brilliant people of Twitter, find the connection. And it was indeed a catfish caught in Italy in 2018. <laughs> and actually a pretty big one at that. So there was this guy, actually three friends, Benjamin Gründer, Kai Weber and Markus Brock. I believe they are German. And they went to Italy for fishing mm. on the River Po, mm. which is the largest river of Italy. And they caught this catfish and it weighed an estimated 130 kilograms. And it was more than two and a half meters long. So it was really huge. And a photo was taken of this catfish and put on Twitter. Now, someone find both photos and catfish have uh, spotted sides this particular uh, species of catfish and the spots on the side so the pigmentation on the on the side of the back is a kind of ident way of identification in a way uh, of the the particular specimen because it's so unique to every specimen mm. and someone managed to find the patterns of the pigmentation to be the same on that photo as on the photo of the alleged sighting of the Loch Ness, Loch Ness monster, monster. Wow. And if you look at the photo, it's really amazing how it really adds up. It, it really matches. Yeah, the Loch Ness Mystery blog, which is a, a very funny blog, actually. And uh, it's interesting how many things they've managed to investigate. But they found out that Carrington, who posted the original photo, so-called original photo of the Loch Ness Master, is a 3D artist. So... I think it was probably just a routine thing for him, like not even two minutes to make this photo. <laughs> and then he, he made the news with it. But it could have been plausible that a catfish lives in Loch Ness. But the problem is that uh, two years ago, there was an in-depth survey of Loch Ness. I did even mention it, I think, mm -hmm. that it was a DNA uh, survey yes, of yes. all the different species living in the loch and no trace of catfish was found so it had to be a fake <laughs> <laughs> i love the internet here people can find out uh, yeah. these scams very very well and it, it's, it's a yeah, really good catch great good catch i yeah. mean not just a fish but uh but, but, but <laughs> catfish but a fake photo as well all right good story yeah all right, back to disasters then. Um, we can hardly keep up. <laughs> yeah. But among disasters, we let's not forget that climate change is still a thing. May was the hottest month ever uh, recorded globally. I think you mentioned that, Andras. Yes, I did. Uh, some time ago. Yeah. And in Siberia, of all places, the temperature was 10 degrees higher centigrade than usual. And that's 18 degrees Fahrenheit for you American listeners. On the 20th of June, a record 38 degrees Celsius uh, was recorded. And that's, that's 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, and that's the highest uh, since the measurement started in 1885, which is 135 years ago. Absolute madness. Yeah. So at this point, when it, on the 20th of June, uh, a lot of climate scientists pointed out that that means that there's a very high risk for wildfires, uh, which are known to happen in Siberia once in a while. I mean, every 30 years or so. And then now that the risk is high again, of course. And wouldn't you know it, during this last weekend, a satellite belonging to the EU Copernicus Climate Change Programme 
were taking images of fires in Siberia. S and uh, at the time we record this, uh, it's confirmed that approximately 1.15 million hectares are burning in Siberia. And it's all in areas where there's no way for firefighters to do anything about it or to re even reach them. The, the cause of them are probably lightning strikes. First, there's, you know, there's a draft. It's very dry and then there's lightning. And uh, there's nothing to do about it now. They, they will just have to burn. Uh, the fires are worst in the Sakha Republic in the east part of Siberia. Uh, in the areas that are sparsely populated. So I don't think there's a lot of risk for human lives. But uh, the destruction of, of the nature and the environment is uh, going to be really bad. Yeah, it's good. It's a massive habitat loss for lots of animals. And Yeah, I'm sure it is. And one other thing that I've we've talked about uh, as well on several occasions is that since it's the permafrost, usually mo most of Siberia, hmm. or at least large parts of it, when it's melted and the methane that has been trapped there comes out, it will just add to these fires. So a dry forest can catch fire easily in and of itself, but when you add to the equation a lot of methane, methane. then it's, hmm. it becomes catastrophic and impossible to deal with. So Yeah, right. Just... And then methane is a big greenhouse gas as well. So, it, you know, everything bad. <laughs> so, and you can choose, yeah, if, if uh, we're talking about a fire, you can choose whether you want methane in, its, in and of itself as a, a greenhouse gas, or you just burn the methane and it becomes <laughs> carbon dioxide and water, yeah, which are uh, both, water vapor and carbon dioxide are both greenhouse gases. Uh, so, there you go. Hmm. Amazing stuff. Mm. <laughs> and not to talk about that, the fact that uh, large chunks of uh, Siberia are being polluted like crazy these days. Uh, we've heard on the news recently that uh, some kind of um, industrial park let out a lot of uh, wastewater yeah. into the rivers. And then the last uh, couple of weeks ago, it was the oil spill of uh, 20,000 mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. 20, mm -hmm. tons of, uh, of oil. It was terrible. But uh, we, we should not finish on, a, on such a bad news. No. So let's go to Spain and talk about something that is absolutely positive. And that is, Great. again, ARP-SAPC, a society for the advancement of critical thinking, one of the Spanish skeptical organizations. And um, a couple of years ago, there was a tragic death of uh, one of their beloved members, Sergio López Borgoñoz. I probably butchered his name. I'm sorry about that. And uh, right after that, they established a research grant uh, that was offered by the organization. And that research grant is to for those members of the organization. So it's not open for everyone. It's for members of the organization who put forward a research proposal on the field of um, paranormal and pseudoscientific claims. So you have to put together a proposal and if they decide that uh, it's quite a good thing and it's worth investigating, then they will provide you with 300 euros of a grant Plus, the board of directors will assign uh, an experienced member of the organization to oversee 
the research project and uh, to supervise the project. So this is quite good. If you are a scholar who has already published on um, recognized, a widely recognized scientific journal, then an additional 300 euros will be added to that uh, uh, original 300. So I think it's quite a good initiative. Uh, and the reason why I think it's worth mentioning is because it, it might be a good idea for others to to try to train the next pseudoscientific researchers and the next well-known skeptics. I think it's a very good way of doing that. So um, the deadline for the proposals is the 30th of uh, September this year. And uh, the project must be delivered before March 31st the next year, so 2021. And the minimum length is 50,000 characters of the outcome, and the maximum is 70,000, so it's not a massive size, but it's a, what a, an essay that you have to write at the end of it. All right, so this has been all the news, and uh, I think it's time for us to find out who's been really wrong lately. Right, so uh, classical really wrong this week, non-COVID related one as well. I applaud that. <laughs> <laughs> there is an elementary school in Sweden that has been duped by an activist organization for people who are quote unquote sensitive to electromagnetic radiation. Oh no. Oh, yeah, yeah. The 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 group uh, is uh, yeah, it's sort of rather a tragic group actually. Uh, they've been around for quite some time, and they have also received the Swedish Skeptics Confounder of the Year award <laughs> back in 2013. They call themselves the Foundation for Radiation Safety, which sounds very official, and in its Swedish. Uh, version is very easily confused uh, as a, an official authority really. Now this, gr this group has lobbied this elementary school just south of Stockholm to install special covers for all their Wi-Fi routers and radiation shields for all their iPads. And as most of our listeners already know, this is absolute nonsense. There's no evidence or theoretical reason to believe that uh, this kind of transmissions can harm living tissue at the levels that we're talking about anyway. Also, people who say they feel discomfort and feel bad when they're exposed to such radio waves, they cannot tell when these things are on or off in a blinded <laughs> test. So, so it, it, it's dodgy. <laughs> yeah. And, and I should be clear. I mean, I'm not saying that these people don't have problems, that they don't feel, I mean, really things that they should deal with but it's not the radio waves it must be something else because if they can't even tell if it's on or off then it's not that yeah 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 uh, so so that's why it's so harmful then to with organizations like this like this foundation for radiation safety because they confirm people's erroneous beliefs and they keep them chasing the wrong causes for their problems so they keep them from from finding the real issue and that's why it's so harmful. And, and also, installing shields for Wi-Fi and iPads, how would that work? If the shields and covers that this school now has invested in, in if it really worked, the equipment would stop working. Absolutely. Because they, because how, how can you have a Wi-Fi router the signal through, yeah. that doesn't transmit any signals? Then you can <laughs> just turn it off. That's the best way. Oh, oh yeah. Craziness. So... 
for keeping ignoring the science and for deceiving people into focusing into something that isn't a problem, keeping them from finding the real issue from what they're suffering from, the Foundation for Radiation Safety gets today's prize for being really wrong. And to some extent also, I must give it to the board of this school because they should know better and they should be better informed for this uh, scam. Or It's not a scam, sorry. It's, it's, uh, it's the misconception. Yeah. Yeah, no, they should open a, a web shop with uh, tinfoil hats. And yeah, or routers like that, that are constantly switched off. <laughs> <laughs> and see how far they get. Yeah, I bought a, a router, but I didn't get the AC adapter. Um, is that deliberate? <laughs> yes, of course. You, you should not turn it on. Okay. All right. Thank you very much, Pontus. Okay. And that concludes our show, which means that there is only one thing left for us, and that is the quote to finish the show on. And it is a quote from Georges Cuvier, uh, who's a fr who was a French naturalist, widely considered the founder of comparative anatomy and paleontology. And in 1810, he said the following. To spread healthy ideas among even the lowest classes of people, to remove men from the influence of prejudice and passion, to make reason the arbiter and supreme guide of public opinion, that is the essential goal of the sciences. That is how science will contribute to the advancement of civilization, and that is what deserves protection of governments who want to ensure the stability of their power. Hmm. He knew that 200 years ago. Yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> imagine that. At least. 210 at least even, yeah. Yeah, exactly. He was not always right about the things that he believed in, but uh, his contribution to science is undeniable and uh, apparently his understanding of it as well. But that means that we are at the end of our show. Thank you very much, Pontus, for joining me today. Thank you. Many thanks to our listeners for tuning in. Please keep doing so. And until next week when we probably come back with a guest host. Goodbye. Hello. Bis dann. This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments or death threats to info at theesp.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes, as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know, as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Rubb and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at www.theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe How active and awesome the skeptical movement is in the region. This <laughs> sorry. sorry. I was surprised. <laughs> so I imagine you're surprised too. Church of the New Invad The Church of the New Inv Church of the New Evad
evangelization. Okay, try again. Evangelization. <laughs> okay, Ch- that's that's a word. Yes. That's a word I recognize. Church yeah. of the <laughs> new evangel. <laughs> new new evangelization. Vaginalization. <laughs> oh no. no. <laughs> Shit, didn't we say we should finish this in proper time? Sorry.